The sermon passage today from Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Suzanne. You may be seated. Let's pray together. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one whose promises are true, you spoke and the universe came into existence. The heavens declare your glory and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. And all your works are good. You are good and you do good. Father, it is a joy unparalleled to marvel at the wonders of all that you have done. Your law is perfect. Your testimony is sure. Your precepts are right. Your commandments are pure. Your rules are true and you are to be desired above all. And we do desire you today to worship you, to see you high and lifted up, and to praise your name with our lips and our lives. And yet even as we do so, we find ourselves so easily beset and entangled in our sin. We too much and too readily desire our own ways. And regardless of how many times we have seen you be faithful to keep your promises, we find it far too easy to doubt you, to believe the lies of the enemy, to desire the pleasures of the world, and to trust in our own flesh. Oh Lord, we are a deeply sinful people. And as we are going to be reminded yet again this morning, if we had only ourselves and our strength in which to trust, in which to hope, we would be left in despair and slavery with nothing but death and hell as our end. But today, Father, we have a better hope and a better future because the blood and promise of your son, Jesus, and it is to him we cling, to him we cry out for forgiveness, and in him we hope. We know that this hope is not for us only, but it is hope for the world, hope for your people, wherever they may be this morning, and it is for them too that we pray. We pray for our sister churches meeting all throughout Sumner County today, 
We pray that they would proclaim your gospel with boldness, that you would do a great work in and through them all. And we pray for our brothers and sisters, wherever they are in the world at this moment, we know that many awaken today in a devastated, war-torn darkness from which they do not know if they will emerge. And we know that others are gathered in secret, unsure if they will be discovered. And for them all, we pray that you would keep them near to you, help them to persevere and sustain and use them for your glory. And now I pray for the preaching of your word. And it is your word that I desire to preach, not my own. May every word that comes out of my mouth be of you, point us to you, and glorify you. And if anything I say is not of you, would you cast it away? If there are any here this morning who do not know you, I pray that you would save them. And for us all, help us to remember that your promises are true. And you are faithful. It is in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have not already done so, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. If this is your first time at Redeemer or your first time back with us in a while, welcome. We're very glad that you are here. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians for a couple of months now, and we're going to continue to do so this morning. And today, we're going to once again see Paul offer yet another exhortation to these Galatian believers and through them to us that we can, that we should, that we must stand on the promises of God and not on works of the law, not on our own works. Now, for those of you who've been here the last five or six weeks, you're probably starting to feel a little bit like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day thinking, I know we've been here before. You're, you're right, we have, and we're going to do it again because as LJ shared last week, we at Redeemer will speak when, where, and what scripture speaks. And so God in his wisdom has determined that this appeal be made once more to us. So we're going to do that today. Now, having said that, I think it can be proper for us to consider why God, through Paul, has chosen to so thoroughly belabor this point. Why does he feel compelled to say this in every different way over and over and over again? You know, were the, were the Galatians just especially mentally deficient? No, I don't think they were. We don't see any indication of that. But I do think there are a number of reasons pertinent to them and to us for why this has been so exhaustively talked about in this letter. First, we have to remember our context. You know, as Jamie shared early in the series, this is almost certainly one of Paul's first letters that he wrote. So this is one of the first opportunities he has had to, to address such an important and foundational aspect of the gospel. And I use the term foundational here very intentionally because he knows that if the foundation of the gospel is not laid rightly in the hearts of these believers and in our own, then the whole structure of Christianity that he is going to teach, the whole teaching of scripture is going to fall apart. We have to, we must, must, must get this right. It is of the highest importance. Secondly, I think he hits it over and over and over again because it's an idea that's hard to grasp, or, or at least it's hard to believe. And we have to take care that we not be lulled into this false sense of confidence just because we've grown up hearing the gospel over and over again. Yeah, I think Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf says it well. He says, playing off of Calvin, our hearts become factories of idols in which we fashion 
and refashion God to fit our needs and our desires. And that's what we do. In, in our flesh, we constantly want to fight this idea that God's promises are sufficient for us. We constantly want to find some way to just maybe a little bit insert ourselves into the saving work of God. And so Paul's going to continually push us to fight that temptation, to push us toward trusting in God and his promises and not in ourselves. And then third, I, I don't mind sharing with you that, that when I read you know, and reread and read again this passage in preparing for today, it felt a little bit like a slog to me too, just coming through this. Like, it felt like Paul is just trying to grind us into submission where we just say, Fine, I get it. Paul, I promise, I believe you. Will you please just say anything else? But you know, as I did more, I hope this was the Holy Spirit. He kind of softened my heart to see this from another angle. It reminded me of, you know, when you walk into like a high-end jewelry store, what do you see? All the big shiny diamonds. They've got the lights everywhere, right? They just sparkle like crazy. But, but I think that's what Paul is getting at here. You know, he, he knows this is, the, this is the hope diamond of the gospel. This, this is even better than the diamond the old lady threw away in Titanic. Like this is a big deal. And, and he wants us to just see it from every possible angle and to be enamored with and enraptured with Jesus and to see what he has done for us. And by contrast, to see how enfeebled and how worthless every other approach to God is. He's just turning that diamond again and again and saying, look, isn't this amazing? Isn't it the most extraordinary thing you have ever seen and you've ever heard? Isn't it so much better than everything else the world has to offer? And so with thanks to Jamie and LJ for, for showing us that in these last several weeks, it's now my hope to turn the diamond one more time and trust that God would be pleased to make his gospel sparkle for us once more. So to that end this morning, we're gonna consider three things. First, we're gonna look at a misdirected desire. Second, an allegory. And then third, a promise kept. And when we're done, it is my hope that we would see and believe this to be true that we find freedom and salvation in Jesus and his promise alone. And to seek that freedom or salvation in anyone or anything else is to submit to slavery. And if we can do that today, we will have seen a good thing. And as we turn to the passage this morning, I have to confess that I approach it with a little more trepidation even than normal because as I was preparing, you know, reading commentaries and different things, all these really, really smart people kept saying things like, oh, this is one of the hardest passages in scripture. It's so difficult. And I was okay until I read one theologian who said it's one of the most perplexing passages in the New Testament, and that was our own Josh Hayes. And I thought, if Josh Hayes can't get this thing, what hope do the rest of us have? I might as well just throw in the towel. Josh, you're, it was very helpful. Thank you, brother, for that. But not in my own strength, trust, excuse me, the Lord to keep us focused on his promise and the sufficiency of it for us today. So let's consider these things together. As I mentioned, our first point is a misdirected desire. Look again with me at Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, let's remind ourselves of what's happening here. Paul is writing to these new believers in Galatia, but a group of Jewish believers have come from Jerusalem, not on the authority of the church there, as LJ showed us last week, but they've told these believers that, yes, being a Christian is a good thing. That's good. You should do that. But to really do it, you have to become Jewish first. You have to, to obey the works of the law. Now, a couple of things we need to consider about this. First, by all appearances, these Judaizers, as Paul called them, sincerely believed 
what they were teaching. It can be very tempting for us sometimes to picture false teachers or heretics as just these cartoon villains sitting back twirling their mustaches, plotting world domination, but that's just not usually the case. When you go back and study church history, look at this, very often it was people really wrestling with God's word and trying to figure out how to apply these things and obey what it teaches. And because of that, to the Galatians' ears, and perhaps to our own, this can seem like a good thing. And that reality is instructive for us this morning. I think it gives us two quick points of application. First, we have to be mindful that temptations and distractions from the gospel will not obviously be wrong. I think sometimes we think it's going to just be a big flashing sign that this is a bad idea. No, most often it's going to be packaged as a good thing. It will seem like it is right and it will feel good to us. And two, knowing this, it is not simply enough to be sincere in our beliefs. Again, there's no indication that the Judaizers here were anything less than utterly sincere, even zealous in teaching and believing and pursuing this. But in one of Paul's other letters in Romans, when he's developed his thoughts even more fully, he says this in chapter 10, verses one through three, speaking of his fellow Jews, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is this, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's the point he's getting at here. He knows that it is not just enough to sincerely believe or just to believe hard enough. They and we have to get the gospel right. You know, the desire of all the parties here is good. It's just being misdirected. It's being aimed to the wrong end. We want to be so laser focused again on that diamond of the gospel that when other enticing jewels come along and, and they will, that they don't distract us. They don't draw us away from the true gospel and from the promises of God. So the second thing we wanna consider from, from this, this verse here and what Paul is saying, as we've seen, he has very strong feelings about how to respond to this challenge. Once again, he knows that it is so foundational to everything that he's teaching that he does not wanna take any chance that they're gonna miss this or misunderstand him. And so look at how he says, I think it's interesting how he responds. He says, fine, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to it? He's essentially saying, guys, before you get all excited and all gung-ho about, about pursuing the law and keeping the law for your salvation, have you actually read it? Do you really understand what you're committing to? Are you, are you absolutely sure this is the path you want to take? Because you see, unlike the Galatians who are, who are new to all of this, Paul appreciates the full gravity of what the Judaizers are asking here because he has read, he has tried to obey the fullness of the law and he knows that it nearly destroyed him. Now, don't think this is just some weird hangup that Paul has. This is the testimony of all of scripture. In James 2.9, for example, James says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. They know, the apostles know that to choose the path of law keeping as a means of obtaining salvation and favor with God is a fool's errand. It is the way of pain. It is the way of death. And friends, this is so important. You know, I called this a misdirected desire intentionally because the desire here and the desire probably of most of our hearts is a good one. 
but we want to direct it in the right way and toward the right end. You know, as Jamie shared a few weeks ago, it is probably unlikely that many of us are grappling with keeping the Jewish works of the law and keeping all of their customs and rituals. I don't think that's where our struggle lies this morning. But make no mistake, there are just as many Baptist works of the law. There are just as many Southern works of the law. There are just as many suburban works of the law that we can try to keep to accomplish the same thing, to, to make us right before God, to make us right in the eyes of others. Oh, we know better usually than to say that out loud, but our lives can just as loudly communicate that if you don't look or speak or think or heaven forbid, vote or post on social media like we do, then, then you're not in the inner ring of Christianity. You may not be, even be a Christian at all. And, and, and like Paul here, I, I know this and, and I care so much about it because this is a part of my story. This was an influence in my own life. Some, many of you know my gospel story, but in brief, you know, I grew up in East Tennessee and from my earliest days was deeply, deeply involved in the life of the church. You know, in my early years, we were members of the very living epitome of the small country church. 100 people would have been a big day. We had the old school attendance boards on the wall with little black and white numbers, if you remember those. Our, our preacher made the fire and brimstone guy sound like Joel Osteen. He sweat a lot, he screamed, he spit. I mean, it was just the whole thing. Look, if you got into heaven based on your Southern Baptist credentials, I would be there now. I was in missions friends, I was in royal ambassadors, I had the vest with the pins and the patches. I was very cool, it was awesome. Uh, but when I was six, the question I had for my mom one day, we were riding to church, uh, funnily enough, and I said, hey mom, how do I not go to hell? That was where I was at as a six-year-old. This was a very important question to me, and it was good. It was good. And my parents wisely sat down and shared the gospel with me. The next Sunday, went down, talked to the pastor. We prayed, and then a few weeks later, I got baptized. All well and good, right? That's great. But as life goes on, as I'm growing up through my middle school and my high school years, it was interesting. I, I was blessed with this great group of friends, overlapped at school and church. And, and look, we were light years from sinless, like not even close, but we really were trying to pursue the Lord. This was not a case of like the, the hidden, like super hypocrites. We, we were trying to do this thing. And I was, I was as involved in our church and our youth group as you could be. Yeah, I was there for all the things, all the events. We did all the Bible studies. We did the disciple nows. We did mission trips. I led the Bible studies. I was president of our FCA. Little week on the A part, still am, but that's okay. I was in our youth praise band. We were called Salty Mustard because again, we were cool, y'all. It was just, it was incredible. And, and look, I say all that not to pat myself on the back, but, but to say outwardly, I was every bit of the good Christian kid that you could be, did all the things. But then we get to the summer of 2000. I'm 17 going into my senior year of high school. Some of you may remember Billy Graham comes to Nashville that summer. So here we come, like every good youth group in the greater Southeastern region. And I have no real expectation. It's Billy Graham. That's, that's great. This should be nice. And he preaches what I assume is the Billy Graham sermon that he's preached thousands of times. You, you know what it is, right? To be saved, you must repent of your sin. You must believe the gospel and trust in the promise of Jesus and come to him. And look, I don't want to overly mysticize this, but at the end of that sermon, however many tens of thousands of people were in the stadium, it was like it was just me and the Lord. And the Lord showed me as clear as day that I was trusting in my own righteousness. I was trusting in my own form of law keeping for my salvation. Because you see, I was just as sinful as all those terrible sinners I heard about. You know, the sinners out there, those really bad ones. It was just that my sin dressed up a little nicer. 
My sin was a little more respectable, to use Jerry Bridges' phrase. But I was just as lost. I was just as in need of Jesus. And it was there that he saved me, not because of anything good I had done or could do, but entirely of his grace, entirely on his promise. And and that's our appeal to you today. That, That is our plea to you. Whatever works of the law you are trusting in, be that the Jewish law or the law of your social tribe or your political tribe or or just your own self, whatever it is, stop that. That will not save you. That cannot save you. The good news, the great news is that if your heart still beats, if you still draw breath in your lungs right now, it is not too late to run to Jesus. It is not too late to repent of your sin and trust in him. And we, we beg you to do that today. Any of us, our elders, our staff, it, frankly, anybody in here, would be thrilled to talk with you about these things. The desire is a good one. And just like Paul here, we want to help you direct it rightly. We want you to see the way that God has promised. We want to point you to that end. And that brings us to our second point, which is an allegory. You see, not only does Paul know the law and its implications better than the Judaizers, he understands their history better Throughout this whole letter, Paul has been using the entire Old Testament to kind of beat them at their own game because he keeps going back and showing them in the scriptures how they have gotten it wrong. And he's about to do so again here. Look back at verses 22 and 23 with me. It says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, again, if you have grown up around the Bible or in church, you're probably very familiar with the story to which he is referring here. But if you haven't, or you're a little rusty on the details, that's okay. Let's do a quick quick review of the highlights and lowlights. Um, and there are both in this story. So it's told in Genesis chapters 12, 15 to 17, and 21. So of all the humans on the earth, God calls a man named Abram, who he'll later rename Abraham. And he calls him to, to follow and obey and trust God. And God has promised to make him a great nation. So I'm going to make you this great nation. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Sounds good, right? That's great. One problem, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are very old, especially by childbearing standards. She's 65, he's 75. Hmm, this seems like, like a problem. So they try to figure out how God's going to fulfill this promise. In Genesis 15, Abraham kind of wonders, like, maybe God meant he's going to use, like, my heir. We don't know much about this guy. He's named Eleazar. It might have been a servant, maybe an extended family member, but he thinks maybe, maybe that's who it's going to be. But God says, no your very own son shall be your heir. So 10 years pass, Abraham and Sarah are now 85 and 75 respectively. And in Genesis 16, they decide to take matters into their own hands because Sarah says, God has prevented me from having a child. And I'm mindful of little ears here, but she tells Abraham, go have a child with my servant, whose name is Hagar, and that will result in the birth of a guy named Ishmael the following year. Little aside here, a little quick pastoral application for the current and future husbands among us. Men, if your wife ever comes to you and says, honey, just go have a child with my servant to perpetuate the family line, it's fine, I promise. You would do well to remember and heed the wise words of Admiral Akbar in Star Wars. It's a trap. Your answer should be an immediate and unequivocal, no, no, I will not do that. This is right up there with, does this dress make me look fat? What do you say? No. When do you say it? Immediately. 
Hesitation will get you killed. You don't, you don't go down this path. This is the way of pain and death. And we laugh, but, but there's real tragedy here. It, it, there's great tragedy here because you see, Paul is using this story. He's pointing us back to this to show what happens when we try to force God's hand, when we try to fulfill his promises in our own strength, in our own way, through our own efforts, and, and not to be too crude about it, but there's no faith. There's no trust required for Abraham in his old age to father a child with an apparently much younger Hagar. That can happen. But contrast that with the conclusion of the story in Genesis 17 and 21, when Sarah gives birth to Isaac, when she is 90 years old and Abraham is 100. Now that can only come about through the work of God. That can only happen if God keeps his promise and it required Abraham and Sarah to trust him for 25 years. It was 25 years from the time God made that promise till he kept it for them, till he fulfilled it in their lives. Now do you start to see why Paul is using this story to illustrate this point? Do you see why he says that the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise? Well, he goes on to make this point even more explicit in verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Uh-oh. Oh, for some of you, your palms just got a little, little sweaty. You're getting a little nervous because of that word allegorically. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't remember for sure what an allegory is, but I know it's bad when we read scripture. We read scripture, literally. We, it's true. It is, it's, don't panic, it's fine. Paul is not saying that the story never happened. Otherwise, we just wasted our last few minutes. What he's saying is there's more to learn from this than the bare fact that it happened. I like how theologian Michael Bird puts it. He says, allegory is a fine interpretive vehicle as long as you have a hermeneutical seatbelt. And so we, let, let's buckle our seatbelt because yes, we want to read scripture literally, if by that we mean reading it as it was meant to be understood in its original context, not this just kind of dead wooden literalism. And we get that in other parts of scripture. You know, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, we know not to picture a, a talking vine. Right? We do know that, right? I hope, like VeggieTales is not true. That would have been weird. Jesus is Larry the Cucumber. Phil Vischer was a prophet, who knew? No, 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 no. No, at verse 24, what does Paul want us to learn from this story? Well, he says, these women, referring to Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants. And then he examines each one of them. He says, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Huh, that's kind of weird. What's going on there? I think there are three details we need to get from Paul's point here. First, the correlation to Mount Sinai is that it represents the giving of the law. This is where God gave the law to Moses, and it was an enormous event in the life of God's people. So he's, he's focusing the Galatians on, hey, this law you're so, so excited to, to submit to and, and to obey and, and to trust in to save you. I want you to think about that moment. And then second, he says that she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Well, who is that? What, what is that? Those those are the ones who are coming to the Galatians and saying that to be a Christian, you also have to keep these Jewish customs. You were actually saved by keeping the works of the law, which you can do in your own effort. Well, what is the result of that? Well, that's what he says. He says, she is in slavery with her children. Paul says, look at what happened to Abraham and to Hagar and to Ishmael and to their descendants when they tried to keep God's promises in their own strength. It led... And if we do the same thing for us, it will lead to slavery. It's still 
does that. He's telling them one more time, the works of the law are not the way. It's like we said, he's trying to hit them from every possible side to get them to see that this is not the way. Guys, you cannot be saved through this. But contrast that then with what he says in verses 26 and 27. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Again, this feels kind of strange, but, but he's talking about Sarah here. He's contrasting Hagar and Sarah, and she is free. Why is she free? Because of God's promise and only because of his promise. He's reminding them that they are children of that same promise. Just as Abraham and Sarah could not bring about the birth of Isaac in their own strength, in their old age, neither can the Galatians and neither can we secure our salvation Neither can we secure God's blessing in our own strength. We too are wholly dependent on God's promise. And that's why in verse 27, he quotes from Isaiah 54, which is a reminder from God to his people in exile that he has not forgotten them, that he has not abandoned them, that he will keep his promise to them. And that's exactly the connection he makes in verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. I hope the exhortation is clear here. You have two choices set before you, slavery or freedom. Slavery or freedom. You can choose the way of your own works. You can choose the way of your own effort, just as Abraham did with Hagar. And you can submit yourself to slavery and eventually death. Or you can remember that you are children of promise and that God is faithful. Note that he doesn't tell them to go and earn that promise. He reminds them that is what they are They are the children of promise. And that brings us to our final point, a promise kept. A promise kept. Look once more at verse 29 with me. Paul says, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. He acknowledges that even by the time the Galatians are hearing this, this conflict that they're facing is already 2,000 years old. And we know from Genesis, that there was enmity between Ishmael and Isaac, the son of slavery and the son of promise. But again, Paul's showing us an allegorical point here, more more to that story, that this conflict between slavery and promise has not abated for the Galatians or for us. Now we're 4,000 years later and we're torn by the same conflict. Will it be works or will it be promise? So what, to, to what does Paul point them? Does he say, like everything around us screams today, you know, just look into your hearts, trust yourselves, be all that you can be, be what you want to be. No, he, what does he say? He says, what does the scripture say? Now there's a lesson right there. We could take that if nothing else today. He points them back to the word of God. And he says in verse 30, cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, in in Genesis 21, when that happened, we know that was a source of great pain and tension and conflict in their family. But again, allegory for us, Paul is showing us that there is no middle path. There is no compromise between these two. You are one or the other. You are a child of slavery or a child of promise. What will we be? Remember Paul's closing words in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. If you are in Christ, then that is true of you too. You are not enslaved. You are free. 
And there's good news for everyone here this morning. And I want all of you to hear this wherever you might fall on this line, because if you are not yet in Christ, if you have been pursuing your own course, trusting in your own goodness, then there's nothing left that stands between you and Jesus. Lay down your burdens. Lay down your efforts and your striving. Lay down your sin at the cross of Jesus and run to him. He's alive and he is reigning and his promises are true and he is faithful and good. This morning, if you are in Christ, but maybe you find that you like the Galatians, you've been enticed by the serpent's subtle whisperings that yes, Christ is good, but, but you need just a little bit more. Then friends, flee from that temptation. Cling to Jesus, flee from the slavery that awaits at the end of that path and remember that you are a child of promise, of his promise. And that doesn't mean that we're free to live as we wish. We're gonna see that in chapters five and six. But before we get there, we have to be so secure in this foundation. We have to remember the promise of God. We have to remember what Paul has reminded the Galatians and us over and over up until now. There is no better path. There is no better way. There is no better promise. And I love what LJ said last week. There is no better gospel. So if you're looking for it, stop. This, this is it. As we close this morning, I've used this analogy before, but I think it's appropriate again in light of today's passage. Imagine one day standing before judgment and you learn from God that to be saved, you have to have earned a million points in your life. All right, let's see. So you have to make your case. Why, why should you get a million points? You think, well, I never murdered anyone. God says that, that's good. We frown on murdering here. But that's worth zero points. You're a little bummed. You think, okay, that's kind of a low bar, not murdering. But you think a little more. Okay, what else did I do? You're like, ah, I've got it. How about this? I looked after widows. I adopted orphans. I even rescued puppies. I mean, come on, puppies. That, that's got to be worth something, right? God says, yeah, those are good things. It's worth zero points. Now you're, you're concerned. I mean, if puppies don't get you there, what's gonna do this? You think, you think, you think. Finally you say, I've got it. I've got it. I actually, I lived nearly a perfect life. I gave everything I had away to the poor. I went to all the ends of the earth to tell people about you. In fact, I died for doing this. Almost perfectly. Everything right, except one time, just one time, one little tiny sin. Just one time I messed up. And God looks at you sadly and says, Yes, you did. That's worth zero points. Friends, that, that's the despair. That's the slavery of trying to keep the law for your salvation. Nothing in you, nothing in me can be good enough for that. But what about Jesus? What is his blood? What is his promise worth? Friends, it's worth everything that is why Paul has hammered this point over and over and over and over again, because it is worth everything. It is the only thing that is worth everything. That is the diamond of the gospel. And it shines brightest in the darkness. Oh God, help us to trust your promise. Help us to remember that it is good, that you are faithful. It is true and you will keep it. If we are ever trying in our own strength, in our own 
flesh to earn favor with you, to secure right standing with you. Help us to lay it down, to look to Jesus, and to cling to him. It is again in his name and by the power of your spirit that we pray. Amen.